Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. You'll find Matthew, of course, uh, right at the beginning of the New Testament. So if you're in Psalms or Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn right. And if you're in Mark or Luke or John or Romans or Galatians, turn left. And uh, you'll find Matthew, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 of Matthew, chapter 1. This is how the Holy Scripture begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, King David. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa. Your translation might say Asaph. We'll talk about why that is in a little bit. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, or maybe Amos. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. Amos, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus... There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Every year when we visit my in-laws at their home in Buffalo, we try to get together with my wife's Canadian cousins, which means dinner with Chuck. Uh, Chuck is my wife's uh, cousin's husband. Uh, It's good to see Chuck every year. Chuck Uh, retired recently from serving as a a border security guard. He worked border enforcement, mostly in the uh, commercial uh, uh, transactions, uh, uh, border crossing between the United States and Canada. It's fun to have dinner with Chuck because Chuck has great stories about dumb smugglers. Um, Chuck also embodies many of the fine virtues that we associate with our uh, northern neighbors. But Chuck was born in the United States before moving to Canada and becoming a Canadian citizen. So Chuck has many of the virtues of the Canadians, but like an American, he's proud of them. So it's an unusual combination. 
Uh, We spend time talking about the differences between Canadians and Americans and how much Americans don't really know about Canada. And a few years ago, he said to me, he said, I bet I can name five American presidents for every Canadian prime minister you can name. (laughs) I took the challenge. I lost miserably. I named three. Trudeau, because he's the prime minister now. Trudeau, because his father was also prime minister. And I think I eked out Stephen Harper. That's as far as I got. And Chuck started with Washington and made it in order all the way till he got to FDR and I surrendered. I screamed, I surrendered. I, I was, as Chuck uh, planned, uh, suitably chastened. My American education has taught me virtually nothing about our neighbors to the north. You could fill Manitoba with my buckets of ignorance about Canada. Uh, But I've thought about that conversation with Chuck a couple times since then. And here's my considered opinion about how much I know about Canadian prime ministers. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares? I hope I'm not saying this is an arrogant American, but who really cares about the Canadian prime ministers? I asked Chuck how many Canadian prime ministers there have been so I could gauge my ignorance in some way. And he said that because of their parliamentary system, they sometimes have people fill the slots for just a few weeks or a few months in election season. So do you really count them as prime ministers? He really didn't know how many they've had. I don't care. Canada's a wonderful country. You should visit it sometime. The the landscaping is beautiful. The people are virtuous. It's, It's a wonderful place. But Canadian prime ministers have not nearly had the same effect in the world as American presidents. I should have reversed the challenge on Chuck. I should have said to him, I can name five American presidents who made a difference in the world for every one Canadian prime minister you can name who's made a difference in the world. Who cares? You might have that same feeling about this list of names that I just read to you in the book of Matthew. This list of names. You probably recognize some of them from Sunday school. It's in the Bible, this list is, so it's got to be important. But this seems like a terrible way to begin a book. The first sentence of a book is supposed to grab you by the throat. It's supposed to get your attention and draw you in and make you read it. I saw some mother post that on social media. She let her uh, eight-year-old boy sit down with her computer and he decided to write a novel. This was the first line of his novel. There once was seven pairs of underpants. They were not ordinary, they were evil. That's the kind of book I want to read, all right? That's the first sentence that's good, right? Any editor worth his skill would have made Matthew change this beginning. And yet, here it is. Here it is for us. What do we do with it? I want to propose to you today that this long list of names serves serves a very important purpose in Matthew's telling about the good news about Jesus. It's, It's here to tell us who Jesus is, and it's here to set a course for us for what is to come in the rest of the gospel. It's really quite important, and even actually interesting, if you know where to look. Can I try this morning to prove that to you? Uh... I already gave you the two headings that I want to use to work our way through this passage. Who Jesus is and what do we expect from him? What to expect from him? Matthew's going to tell us this is the book about the most important person who has ever lived. You can't know too much about Jesus. 
Everything you know about him, every time you learn something about him, that truth can change your life for the better. Here is who he is and what you can expect from him. First, who he is. And we're going to start in verse 1, and I observe three truths about Jesus. First, Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Verse 1 of my translation says, This is the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, This is the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, We Bible readers, uh, especially in the Old Testament, are used to seeing genealogies like this. It was important to be able to trace your family line because of the promises that God had made. But Matthew uses some uh, familiar language to us. Uh, Literally, the text says, this is the book of the genesis of Jesus, or the book of the beginning, or the book of the origin of Jesus. This is where he came from. That's what the text means, and the words he used actually are identical to language in the Greek translation of the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. You can't tell this in the translations, but the words in the original in Greek are identical Genesis 2-4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 5-1, this is the written account of Adam's family line. And here in Matthew, this is the account of Jesus. Matthew is telling this story, but he's from the beginning connecting you to the original beginning. Here in Genesis is the first beginning, and this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And here in Matthew is the second beginning. Here is the account of Jesus. John does something similar, doesn't he, in his gospel? You know how that goes. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John 1.1 says, In the beginning, ha ha, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Make the connection. Both Matthew and John make the connection. With the arrival of Jesus, God is at work doing something new. His appearance is as significant as the wonder of what happened when God spoke and called the world into existence. He comes, Jesus comes with that weight, with world-making newness, with that impact. You should be prepared for this because one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Matthew is conflict between the new and the old. The new comes, but there's resistance from the old. You can can see that tension in Matthew 9. Jesus talks about wineskins. He says, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. You put new wine into new wineskins. There's conflict between the new and the old. Do you see that conflict in your life sometimes? You as a follower of Jesus? Conflict between the new and the old. Sometimes it involves your family. They, they don't understand your new way of life as a follower of Jesus. Why, why you're doing things the way you are. Why, why you're making the choices that you are. That's why sometimes Jesus reminds his followers that he demands to be loved more than you love your closest relatives. Jesus comes with the shocking force of new creation. Now here's the second thing under the heading of who Jesus is. Jesus is also the king-priest-warrior. Jesus is the king-priest-warrior. That's a mouthful, I know that. 
uh, verse 1 says that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. Verse 1 plugs into the two great promises of the Old Testament, uh, the promise made to David and the promise made to Abraham. The promise made to David is in 2 Samuel 7. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7 says, When your days, David, are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. David was the great king of Israel. And he takes in the Old Testament this almost mythological, massive importance. He was a real person. I'm not saying that David was a myth. But, but the promises around him are huge. He functions like a king priest. He's a mighty warrior. And based on this uh, premise here, the Israelites expected that, that a descendant of David would be born who would lead them in triumph over their enemies and restore their relationship with God. The Old Testament is filled with promises about David. Uh, we read one of them. Uh, Wayne led us in reading from Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And Matthew's saying, Jesus is that son of David. He's the one. And he makes this connection all the way through the book. Are you ready for this? Verse 17 talks about 14. 14, 14 recorded generations. Matthew doesn't include all the generations. He, he gets the highlights here. He mentions the word 14. Why does he key on uh, key in on the number 14. Well, <laughs> there is a Hebrew numbering system. It's called gematria, gematria, and it involves the consonants of, of people's names. So if you take the consonants of David's name, Dalet is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, D, Dalet. Vav, V, V is the sixth letter, sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then Dalet, four. And if you add four and six and four, you get 14. That's David's number. David's number is 14. And 14 is wrapped up here in this story of Jesus. David's name is mentioned 14 times in Matthew. Matthew writes about the Old Testament, uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures 14 times. Some people say that the Sermon on the Mount easily divides into 14 sections. This is the story Matthew says, I am telling you the story of how Jesus, how God sent Israel the promised king, priest, warrior. The problem that we're going to uncover is that he did not reign and he does not deliver like the people expected him to. And there's this tension in the book between who they thought Jesus was supposed to be and who he actually is. Now third, who is Jesus? He's the promised blessing. He's the promised blessing. Verse 1 says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. God had promised Abraham, the father of the Jews, the founder of the nation, that through his descendants, through his family, he would bless the whole world. God would bless Abraham. He would give him as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And, and through Abraham, he would bless the whole world. And Matthew begins his book by arguing that Jesus is the embodiment of that promised blessing. He's the one through whom God is going to bless all of the nations. Remember this. I know that talking about Jesus sometimes can be divisive. Um, Jesus makes demands on people's lives that 
we're not quick to embrace. And sometimes being associated with Jesus' others' followers can be a little embarrassing. But Jesus is the hope of the world. There is no one on the planet that cannot be helped by hearing about Jesus. He's the source of all God's blessings. There is no one in your family. There's no one in your neighborhood. There's no one in your office at work. No one at the plant. uh, No one in the shop whose life cannot be helped by hearing a word about Jesus. Because he is the promised blessing. This is, this is one of the best ways we know to love our neighbors as followers of Jesus. By telling them about who he is and what God has done through him. So that's who he is. Verse 1 tells us. Now let's move on and, and talk about what to expect from him. What to expect from him. And for that we're going to dig in a little bit more into the rest of the genealogy. Matthew tells us that there are three sections here. From Abraham to David from David to the exile, and from the exile to the birth of Jesus. That's how he organizes his genealogy. If we uh, plot them out, I think the history goes up and down. So the history from Abraham is kind of an upward trajectory. From uh, Abraham to David, things look up. What starts here is a promise that God made to a man and his wife about a family. They become a nation. God makes a covenant with them, they get their own land, and then they get David, King, David. Things go up. I know there's slavery down here, but but generally, things go up to David. From David to the exile, things go down. There are these kings listed here, and some of them are real scoundrels. There's this repeated pattern of disobedience to God. It eventuates in the exile itself that he mentioned. So God had promised that his people would have a land and a king and a covenant. And, 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 and at the exile, they lost their land and they're back in slavery and they're kings in chains. Huh. But from the exile to Jesus, I want to suggest to you again, this is an upward, upward trajectory. Restoration to the land, renewal of hope in Jesus, the beginning of the new creation. Frederick Bruner says that in these names, Matthew plants clues that are supposed to tell us about Jesus' family and then what to expect from him in the rest of the gospel. The first clue in this first branch of the genealogy tells us that from Jesus we should expect mercy. Mercy. What do we expect from Jesus? Mercy. Bruner says you can tell that by the inclusion of four women in the genealogy. Women were not normally included in a genealogy, and this list does not include the women that you would expect to be in the genealogy. Not Sarah, not Abraham's wife. You'd expect Sarah to be there. Not Rebecca, Isaac's wife, but Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and a woman whose story is so bathed in shame that she's not even named. Uriah's wife. Not David's wife. She was not David's wife. She became David's wife, but she was Uriah's wife. There's been a lot of debate about what these four women have in common. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Some people think that the the things they have in common have to do with unusual sin, unusual sexual sin. Tamar, her story is told in Genesis 38. 
She dressed up like a prostitute, had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, and that's where Perez came from. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute, Judges tells us, of uh, Joshua tells us. Um, Ruth, by all accounts, is a woman of great upstanding character. She's one of the great heroines of the Hebrew Scriptures, but she was a Moabitess, and you know where the Moabites came from? Another incestuous relationship in the book of Genesis. And then Bathsheba, the one David took to his own bed to satisfy his own lusts. Now, just in case you're thinking that Matthew here is bashing women, remember that the Old Testament does not blame any of these women for what happened to them. Um, In in Genesis 38, when Judah finds out about what he has done and what Tamar did, he says, she is more righteous than I am. (laughs) How bad do you have to be to say that a woman who dressed up like a prostitute to commit incest is more righteous than you are? And then when when the prophets speak about David and his relationship with Bathsheba, what the text says is what David had done displeased the Lord. It doesn't say anything about Bathsheba. What David had done displeased the Lord. Maybe, Maybe that's why they're here. That's what they have in common. Maybe. Maybe they're here because... Matthew is cluing us in that in Jesus' family, there's been a lot of unusual births. So when Mary's pregnant, we should expect that's par for the course. That's how this family rolls. That's what they do. Weird people come into that family through weird ways. Maybe. Maybe. Some people argue that the women are all included here because they're non-Jews. They're Gentiles. That's true. Uh, Bathsheba married a Hittite, so she would have been out of the nation by marriage. Their connection may be their sin. Their connection may be their ethnicity. I think more likely the connection is that they, like everyone on this list, like all of us, need mercy. We all need mercy. When Jesus came, he brought from God mercy. Mercy for messed up lives. Some through their own choices some through the terrible choices of others, messed up lives, for which we need mercy, and Jesus brings mercy. Let's agree as we read this book together that what we all need, what we all need is Jesus' mercy. That's what we have in common. That's what a a Christian is. Christian people are those who have confessed to God that we need mercy. Someone reminded me recently about the children's book called Wonder by R.J. Palacio. Have you, have you heard this book? Um, it's a, but we've got a blue cover on it. Uh, Wonder's about a fifth grade boy. His name is August Pullman. Everyone calls him Augie. He was born with a, a disease, a syndrome that in the book, it's not named, but it, it resembles a Treacher-Collins syndrome. Uh, he's born terribly disfigured. He's had several operations in his life to try to reshape his face. And when he's fifth, in fifth grade, Augie leaves his homeschool environment and enters school with other fifth graders. And you know what fifth graders can be like? Fifth graders can be mean. And wonders about how Augie responds with courage and kindness to the bullying and the ostracism and the strange comments that, that his uh, students, his fellow students make. It's a really a wonderful story. 
A couple of years ago, Luke's class, they read it as one of their projects in school. And then there was a movie that came out about the the story. And the teacher invited uh, all of us, let's go see this movie together. So we went to the movie theater and we watched Wonder based on this book. I will warn you, take some Kleenex, it's a tearjerker. Uh, We left the theater and I said to my kids, I said, do you know why that movie is so effective, why it touches you the way it does? It's because everyone at some point in their lives feels like Augie. Everyone at some point feels ugly. Everyone feels at some point in time disfigured, like they don't belong, like they don't measure up, that they're not right. Everyone feels that at some point in time. And the worst kind of ugliness is not the ugliness that other the worst kind of ugliness is the ugliness that we have brought upon ourselves. There is ugliness that we have that the scars of what other people have done to us. But there's the ugliness that you have introduced into your life. The Bible talks about this in terms of sin and its consequences. We've rebelled against our good creator and because of our rebellion, the world, we are ugly. A church is a community of people who have found in Jesus forgiveness. We have found in him a great beauty and we have found from him a welcome, an acceptance, a mercy. Brothers and sisters, let's agree that this is true about all of us. And let's learn to extend that same sort of welcome and acceptance and mercy to one another. We serve a Savior who for our sake on the cross bore in His body all of the consequences of our spiritual ugliness. He died and rose again and offers life and forgiveness to all who receive it by faith. This ugliness is ours. It's mine. It's yours. And Jesus bore it for us. This ugliness is in Jesus' own family tree. We're going to read from Matthew 1 later uh, next week, Lord willing. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Mercy. Don't you want to be a part of a church that's so entranced by the mercy of God that, that we have received that we extend it to others? We're this odd combination, followers of Jesus. We have incredibly high standards. The righteousness of God. We're pursuing the righteousness of God. That's the sort of lives we want to leave. And we all fail miserably. Here we are. Jesus calls us to help one another along the way. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of kindness. It takes a lot of mercy. Can Tamar and Ruth and Rahab... And Bathsheba remind you about the mercy that comes from Jesus. Now the second part of the genealogy from David to the exile is about justice. It's about justice. This is the list of kings and there's some unusual things here too. First of all, there are some names that are missing. Uh, He left out three kings between Jehoram and Uzziah. I'm not sure why he did that. The three kings he left out were among the most despicable in the family tree. Maybe he just did some pruning for the beauty of the tree, maybe. 
Don't be worried about that. I don't think that was an error on Matthew's part. I think it was intentional. He's hitting the highlights and he left out some of the lowlifes. There's another set of changes, two of them, and I'm not sure quite what to do with them. I have a theory. Your translation might offer a different one. I have something I want to suggest to you. You think about this. See if it makes sense to you. My translation actually skips over them uh, uh, entirely. Yours might not. Verse 7 again. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. My translation just says Asa nothing and nothing else. Your translation might say Asaph. If you have an ESV, it says Asaph. And there's a little number next to it. And down there's a note at the bottom of the page. It says Asaph is an alternate spelling of Asa. Maybe. Maybe not, though. I wonder if Matthew planted a little hitch there, though, for astute readers to find. Do you know who Asaph was? Asaph was, uh, in the Old Testament, is mentioned in the superscriptions of the Psalms. He was an Israelite worship leader. So imagine yourself reading this list. You've got the names memorized. That's what little children did. They memorized the name of the kings. And, and you come to this point and you say, Asaph. No, 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 not Asaph. Asa. Next thought in your mind, oh, but think, wouldn't Asaph have been so much of a better king than Asa? Wouldn't things, our story would be so much different if Asaph had actually been the king and not Asa. Oh. Did Matthew do that on purpose to make you think that way? <coughs> he does the same thing in verse 10 with uh, uh, Amos or Amon. Verse 10, my translation says, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, no note, your translation, if it's an ESV, says Amos, with a little note, says Amos is an alternate spelling of Amon. Maybe, maybe, Amos was a prophet, Amon was a bad king, wouldn't we be so much better off if Amos had been king and not Amon? Here's an illustration that might help. So I, I, I can quote to you the uh, presidents of the United States, just like little Hebrew children would memorize the king's names. I can give you the presidents. George Washington, John Adams, George Jefferson. And you say, no, 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 that's not right. Not George Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, not George Jefferson. But do you remember who George Jefferson was? You have to be of a certain age to know who George Jefferson was. George Jefferson was a character on the television show in the 1970s and 80s. He first appeared as a character on the Archie Bunker show, and then there was a spinoff called The Jeffersons. And George Jefferson was a successful African-American businessman, and the show dealt with uh, themes of race and class and business. What happens in your mind if I confuse Thomas Jefferson and George Jefferson, two very different people. Thomas Jefferson, our great founding father, had his own problems with race and equality. Just imagine if president number three had been George Jefferson and not Thomas Jefferson. How would things be different today? Right? Just imagine if Asaph had been king and not Asa. If Amos had been king and not Amon. Would the exile have ever happened would we have lost the land like we did? Would our ancestors have turned from God, rejected His covenant, been subject to His judgment? Just think. But instead, we got Amon, not Amos. We got Asa, not Asaph. And exile, exile, exile. Judgment from God. Now, 
the question comes to Matthew's readers. Here's the king, Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. What are you going to do with him? Your ancestors, these kings, they spurned God. They spurned his prophets. What are you going to do about Jesus? And the story Matthew writes is about how the Jews, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus and the terrible consequences of doing so. What, dear friend, are you going to do with Jesus? Will you acknowledge his supremacy or not? Will you turn to him or not? Will you follow him or not? Those are not inconsequential questions. People uh, who turn from God experience his justice. And Jesus warns us about that. We don't have much time to talk about the third section of this list, uh, which is fine because we, don't, we know virtually nothing about these men. Uh, there's some names missing again, it, it appears. I think the emphasis here is on faithfulness. So what do we expect from Jesus? Mercy, justice, faithfulness. Faithfulness. We have no stories in the Old Testament about most of these men, but God kept his word and he sustained this family into exile and out of exile. Back into the land, sons were born, families grew, farms were farmed, houses were built, wars were survived down through the ages. And God is watching over all of them. Shield Hill and Zerubbabel and on the name goes. And, and he counts and he watches over. Father to son, father to son. God watches Matan, Jacob, Joseph, and Mary. There's Mary. God's been watching over this family for a long time. And we get to Mary. Verse 16 is odd. Everybody in this passage is a father, a father, a father, a father, except Joseph. It doesn't say anything about him being a father. It just talks about him being a a husband. And the parent in verse 16 is Mary, not Joseph. We'll talk about that more uh, next week. We learn from this passage who Jesus is and what to expect from him. Mercy, justice, faithfulness. I never met my dad's father I think I've told you this before. His name was Walter, Walter Divini. He, uh, no one called him Walter. They called him Walt as much as I know. And uh, he died about seven years before I was born. I've heard stories about Walt. Um, I knew his wife, my grandmother, and I know his children, uh, my aunts and uncles. And everything I know, all the stories I've heard about him, everything I know about Walt's family makes me want to know more about him. I wish I'd met him. He had a great wife, my my grandmother, and he produced some really fine children. I'd like to know him. Here's Jesus' family tree. It's an unusual bunch. He came to rescue them from their messed up lives. Now that you know more about them, we're ready to learn more about him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we awoke to find new morning mercies. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, it's astounding for us to think about this list. It's 2,000 years long, starting with Abraham and ending with the Lord Jesus. 
I'm thankful to you for this portrait that you have painted of Jesus' family because there's some real mess there. It brings us comfort because there's some real mess here too in us. Lord, um, grant us sobriety as we read this book because it's not just about your kindness but about your great justice and your good faithfulness too. Oh, Lord, we want to, as, as Peter said, you love the Lord Jesus. He said to his readers, you love the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would make us men and women and children and teenagers who increasingly love the Lord Jesus. Make us people who are willing, like the Apostle Paul, to give up everything we have so that we might know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We've seen this family and, and we stand in awe of this great Savior, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things together saying, Amen.